You know, recently I read an article by Eric Cantona um, on the meaning of life. He equated it with the meaning of football. So basically the meaning of life is freedom. And that's the same thing for football. The meaning of football is freedom. That's why we do it. Freedom is the highest thing that we can, can, that we can attain to. But I have many questions about this. Freedom for, for what? Freedom in itself is a means to an end. And I think, actually, like we have a fair bit of freedom in our world. I mean, I, I think that especially in our westernized, more rich kind of world, um, we do have a fair bit of freedom. But yet, at the same time, what Eric Cantona writes about, wrote about, resonates with many. I mean, why is that? In our world, where you don't have to have the same job as your parents, where uh, many of us have access to universities to learn whatever we want, where we have running water and electricity and heating and all our transport options, we have Wi-Fi, there's, there's particles in the air somehow give us data that we can look at in our phones and that becomes videos, like this is craziness. The kind of access we have to, the kind of freedom we have. It will boggle the mind of anyone living 100 years ago, let alone someone who was living 2,000 years ago. But still, we don't feel free. Even in our best situations in this world, there is a freedom left to be had. One that this world can't offer. So we all want freedom, but the kind of freedom we want, the kind of freedom we're really made for, just seems a bit out of reach. But maybe if we work harder, we'll get it. Maybe if we have more friends, if we have more fun, if we go out more, if we party more, if we have more drinks, if we have the perfect family, or maybe being the person who can support the perfect family, maybe if we just follow our joy, whatever that means. But that kind of search keeps us in chains to circumstances that this world gives us. If whatever we think is most important comes through for us, we're good. And if not, then we're not good. And we yo-yo back and forth like this. When good things happen, when bad things happen, some kind of like crash diet, and our souls become emaciated and malnourished because we were meant for more than that. Well, Jesus offers a freedom that this world has never seen and can never offer outside of himself. And this story in chapter 5, these stories in chapter 5, written nearly two millennia ago, still resonate with our humanity just as strongly as it did then. Because Jesus is offering freedom in the face of spiritual oppression, freedom in the face of physical oppression, freedom in the face of death itself. So through demons, disease, and death, Jesus is the one who gives us the freedom that we need, the freedom that we crave. So let's start first with demons. It's a good way to start. Sunday morning, let's start talking about some demons. This is a crazy story. These first, verse, these first 20 verses. This is like, we should have done this on Halloween. Because it's the, one of the craziest and freakiest kind of stories that we have in the Bible. And it's vivid. Um, there's this guy who's living completely under control of these kind of dark spiritual forces. There are multiple demons apparently that have control over him. Nobody, no other person here can control him. They put him in shackles, but somehow he breaks through chains and shackles like they can't even hold him down. And where he's living with the tombs, these were like underground caves. This is where the poorest of the poor would live. The same with the hills. He's asked to live in these underground caves or the hills. These are places that people do not want to live because he's been shunned from normal society because he's got this, this crazy possession going on. So it seems that because the townspeople weren't able to control him, they've driven him out to the least desirable areas. Well, what kind of existence must that have been for this guy? 
I mean, the horror genre is common in the Bible, and it's in full effect in these first 20 verses. I mean, he's out there taking stones and cutting himself, crying out like some kind of wild beast. He's definitely living less like a human. Now, the way the people of the time would have described somebody like this uh, would have been insane. It was, oh, he's, he's just insane. That's the same kind of probably way we would describe it. If we came across a guy who was living like this, like he has a mental problem. There wasn't dignity in this man's story. But then comes Jesus, speaking to this man like he's normal. Now these demons know who Jesus is, and they're afraid he's going to send them somewhere where they don't want to be. So they beg the Lord of creation to be sent into a herd of pigs. And Jesus is like, all right, fine, yeah, go into those pigs. And then the intentions of these demons' like forces are made known. Like They drive the pigs to death. That's what they were trying to do to this man, to destroy him, to kill him. But the man, through Jesus, was healed. He was made whole. The townspeople hear about this. They see the pigs, which would have freaked me out. It was like a whole herd of pigs all dead. That's freaky. And then they see the thing that really scares them is this formerly insane man now has clothes on. I guess he was naked before. Um, and he's talking like a normal human. That really freaks them out. And then to Jesus, they're like, you have to go. This is too weird. We can't handle this. I mean, if we came across someone who had the kind of power, I think maybe our first response, or maybe what I would like my first response to be, be like, whoa, like, how did you do this? Or tell me how to do this. Or what, what kind of person is this that can do these things that no other human can? This is a person worth following, but they begged him to leave. They were afraid because Jesus had just helped them with their crazy person problem, and they're not grateful. They're scared. They just want to get back to their own lives. Well, Jesus, after healing the man, tells him to go home to his own people. When was the last time he saw them in, the, in his right mind? And to tell them this story of everything that happened to him. This man's story previously was about being oppressed, was about being alone, was about not having hope, was about not having a real future. How could you think of a future when you have to deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis? But now this man has given, not Jesus has given this man a new gift. He's given him a new story. This man could tell about being freed from oppression. They could tell about having a new life, all because of the Lord's mercy. And this man knows that the Lord equals Jesus. In verse 19, if you have your Bibles there, I don't have it on the screen, sorry. It says, Jesus did not let, uh, let him, the man, come with him. They said, go home to your own people and tell, much, tell them how much the Lord has done. And in verse 20, the man says how much Jesus has done for him. So again, there's another example of Jesus being Lord and claiming to be Lord and it being kind of very normal part of the scriptures. So nobody was able to control this man, let alone heal him until Jesus. Spiritual oppression, completely out of his control, led to him being ostracized. I wonder if maybe one of the reasons why he wanted to follow Jesus was because he didn't have anyone else to go to. He was outcasted, forced to live in the worst of places. He had physical problems like cutting himself. Nobody knows really how to care for him, and even after he's healed. But Jesus frees this man from his oppression, and he also gives him a purpose and a mission. Now, spiritual oppression and demonic possession is not something we would like maybe think about on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but I think there is lots of spiritual oppression in our time. It just looks different. I think sometimes, not in every situation, but I think sometimes that's what our shame, our anxiety, and our depression can look like. 
I mean, there could be physical roots to these, obviously, and it's not just either or, often there's an overlap. But the answer to these problems that we have isn't just a physical one. Exercise can help, antidepressants can help, that's great, let's use them. But they often treat the symptoms and not the root. Because the crafty thing about shame and anxiety and depression is that we might feel like something is horribly wrong, and, um, but we often aren't so horribly off the path, as, I mean, not like this guy, where we want to change. And so we kind of live with that and we think it's normal. And we just kind of keep our heads down and do the things that kind of brought us into the situation. Dragging our spiritual chains around with us. So there's that, but I mean, not to mention, there is real serious spiritual oppression that goes on. There are dark spiritual forces at work in this world. And we shouldn't attribute every bad thing that happens to us to the devil, obviously. Like, oh, it's raining outside because of Satan. Like, no, it's just Manchester. But we also don't want to pretend like the demonic forces don't exist either. Now, if we follow Jesus, we know that the spiritual world exists. We know that this is true. It's what we've been freed from, actually. And if we follow Jesus, whether shame, anxiety, or depression, or anything that's more dark and more sinister, we are powerless against that. But Jesus is in control. That's one of the things about depression, especially. It's like, how can I ever get out of this? You don't have the power to get out of it yourself. That doesn't mean we won't experience um, all of the, the products of not feeling those things. It's not, it's not like if we follow Jesus, we'll never feel shame or we no, we'll never be depressed or we'll never be anxious. But definitely this story teaches us on who to bring that to and who is ultimately in control of that. We may not always be healed, but we surrender that need as well. Our need to be healed, offering our lives to the one who gives us freedom, whether good or bad times. I mean, I face feelings of loneliness. I'm sure everyone in here does more often than, uh, than we probably talk about. But Jesus is more than enough. And I know that he's all I need. I know that his family is my family. That doesn't mean I'm not going to feel lonely anymore, but it does tell me what to do with it. And I know that one day when King Jesus makes everything right, I will not experience that loneliness. Just not yet. Now, if we understood the depth of Christ's healing, our lives would have a certain kind of response. We'd be telling people about how much the Lord has done for us, the same way this guy was supposed to tell the people in his home. We would talk about his mercy in our lives. We should be open with sharing those stories. Now, we already share stories. It's not a matter of if we're going to share or not. The question is, like, what kind of short stories are we sharing about ourselves? Are we the heroes? If we talk about how hard life is, if work is hard and busy, is that really just a, a way for you to say, I'm very smart, or I have uh, a really good job, or I can handle it? Or if you talk about um, you know, your, your, disciple, your, your own personal devotional life, is that just a way for you to talk about how great you are, spiritually speaking? It's, it's in things that we share, but it's also in the things that we don't share. Because we don't often talk about where we feel oppressed. It's not like this isn't normal like dinner conversation. If we don't share about our oppression, our areas that need healing, or that have already been healed, how can we talk about God's mercy? Mercy presupposes a problem and a need to begin with that's been met by God. Mercy is for people who are needy. If we avoid those areas of our lives, we won't be able to talk about God's mercy. And that's not good for us. It's not good for others. I mean, imagine if we were a community that shared our shortcomings and needs openly like it was a normal, everyday kind of thing, because it was a normal, everyday kind of thing. Imagine if we were a, com a, a community that didn't bend to the pressure of needing to have everything all together all the time. 
If I was around people like that, I would probably feel more free myself. You probably would too. For all who have experienced God's mercy, I don't think we have an option to do anything but be open with sharing those stories. It doesn't have to be a big, massive, formal thing. It can just be in normal, everyday speech. Now, we're going to feel awkward. Yeah, we're going to feel inadequate. Yep. And we'll worry about saying the right things. But surely God's mercy is bigger than even that. Surely God's mercy outweighs our worries about being awkward. If we have been freed, we have to talk about it. If we never talk about where we were or where we are and how God has met us, that probably means we actually don't really believe that God is merciful. We shouldn't expect others to get it if we can't get it ourselves. And part of getting it, I have found, part of getting it ourselves means talking about it with others. So God, uh, Jesus, frees us from spiritual oppression and gives us a mission. He tells us to talk about the mercy that the Lord has shown us. Now, these next two stories, um, we're going to get a little quasi-theologian, don't worry, it won't be anything crazy, is um, what uh, textual kind of critics and theologians talk about a Markan sandwich, a sandwich in Mark. He starts with a story, there's a story interrupted and ends with the story. So he starts with a story about Jairus and, and his sick daughter, and then he interrupts that story with this kind of um, person needs physical healing, and then ends that original one. This happens a lot in Mark. Um, we just haven't really talked about it yet. Uh, but uh, that, that's what's going on. And the reason why Mark does that is for those inside stories, tells uh, and gives context for those outside stories, if that makes sense. If not, it's just an ex- excuse for me to say Mark and Sandwich. Um, so let's talk about um, how Jesus has power over the physical world. So Jesus um, frees us from, uh, from disease, frees us from physical oppression. And this is in um, verses 25 through 34, the interruption, as it were. So having some kind of of blood disease, this woman um, would have also been unclean herself. And if she's unclean, then her other friends wouldn't want to be around here because they would be unclean. And it's a big pain to become clean and all that. So probably, most likely, she didn't have very many friends. She didn't have very many people in her life. She would have been isolated. And money couldn't buy her healing. Not only did she go broke, but she was under more suffering after trying to pay doctors all this kind of money in order to fix her. She got worse. Well, this kind of desperate, now poor woman touches Jesus' cloak, probably thinking at the time because it's somehow magical and has some kind of magical properties. Um, Now, obviously, it's not the cloak that's magical. It's Jesus who has the power. But even despite her kind of wrong belief, she's still healed. Still healed. She's freed from her suffering. It says that a few times, freed from her suffering. So Jesus feels this uh, healing happen, but isn't so sure what he is, who it is, who's, who's touched him. And there are all kinds of people like milling about. It's probably like a crowded market. All people trying to get close to Jesus to get healed. And he like asks his disciples, who was that one person that touched my cloak? So I was like, what are you talking about? There's like 50 million people who just kind of came by. Who, who do you mean? Well, Jesus was searching for that one person. He, he asks who it is. And this woman, though she has a lot of fear and trembling, um, now comes to Jesus with her fear. Jesus doesn't want her to stay anonymous and move on. She tells him the whole truth. He says she has faith, and that faith is what has healed her. And then he blesses her. He says, go in peace. And then we read this again. He says, be freed from your suffering. So once unclean, now clean, this woman once held hostage under suffering, now through her faith, Jesus has freed her and give her, has given her the healing she's been paying so dearly for. 
Jesus frees this woman from her oppression. He doesn't just say that she's healed. He says, go in peace, be freed from your suffering. This woman was under physical oppression, in need of freedom. This led to her being ostracized, much like the guy in the first 20 verses. And this meant to her losing her money. She wasn't whole. She was under suffering with her disease. And she finally brought that search to Jesus. Right now, I'm in an email chain with someone claiming to be the director of the FBI, Christopher Ray, and I have $9.5 million waiting for me in, uh, in an account. I just need to give Christopher Ray uh, some money. Um, I promise this has something to do with the sermon, but it is also very funny. Um, he's been trying to get in contact with me, and uh, because he has all this money to deliver me that's due to me, he, all he needs is just $450 to get the account set up. That's all he needs, the FBI guy. So. I wasn't quite sure, should I trust him or not? So I asked him to send maybe a picture of his ID. So that's him right there. Um, interesting that for his driver's license, he's standing in front of an American flag. That's not normal. And he's quite tall, 5,063 feet. Um, so I was like, oh, I don't know, it looks a little sketchy. I don't think that's a real driver's license. Um, how about you send me a picture of you at work? And so he sent me this. Um, I guess this is him hanging out with his, uh, that is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank in their office. Looks a little bit um, nature-y, I guess. Um, I, I've been kind of messing with this guy for a few months now. It's actually kind of fun. Um, now, obviously, I know what's going on. The, 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 F, the director of the FBI is not going to have a Gmail account emailing me. It's not going to be um, Federal Bureau Investigation 1166 at gmail.com. That's just not what it's going to be, is it? He's not going to misspell words like sympathetic. And he'll probably use like correct punctuation and full stops at the end of sentences. He'll probably use the right verb tenses. Of course, I know how these things work. You get... At first, they get you excited. Oh, there's all this money out for you, and um, you give whatever they ask for if you're dumb enough to do that. And then when you give them that money, you don't get that 9.5 million. You're like, oh, where is? Oh, we just need another 200 dollars. Just you know, wire it here or whatever. And like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll wire the money there. And you keep on giving money, and you're never getting the thing that's kind of held out for you. You're never going to get 9.5 million dollars. You're never going to see anything of that. You're going to go broke. You give and give and give, and you never get. Now this is what, like, what life without Jesus at the center is like. We give and give and give to all these things that promise all these things, but they never really deliver in the way they promise. So instead of questioning the system, though, and saying, well, maybe that isn't Christopher Wright, the, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Instead of questioning that, we double down and we give more. Like, oh, it must mean I need to, I need to be more involved. I need to do more things. And at the end, we're left empty less whole than when we started this search. We go broke in the search for wholeness on our own terms. We know that there's something out there to make something in here right, and that's true. But only Jesus is that thing that's out there that can give us what we need. So are we going broke, searching after something that only Jesus can offer? It can look religious, because everyone is religious, by the way. I mean, giving money to the poor, donating stuff to charities, doing stuff with reach out to the community, uh, buying from this particular store or not buying from this particular store, shopping local as opposed to Amazon, whatever the kind of things that we find virtuous in our world. Yeah, we pat our backs, uh, we pat ourselves on the back for these things. And we do lots of other things too, because if we're just 51% good, that means we're completely good and then we're okay. But that's just not how it works. First off, 
your need is much more than you imagine. And everyone looks better in their own eyes. We're not even 1% good on ourselves, by ourselves, let alone 51% good. But we still try. <laughs> we don't feel complete by ourselves, because we were never meant to. So we shop that around to other places. I mean, how many people expect their jobs to deliver this deep purpose in our lives? And if anything, that's like all the anxiety that goes into picking the right university. I'm like, oh, if I don't pick the right one, I'm going to miss out. And I'm like, I'm just not going to feel fulfilled in life. There's going to be something I'm going to miss out on. Or how many people expect their partners to complete them? It doesn't work like that. Only one person can take all that horrible inward turmoil that we have from us and replace it with hope, replace it with peace, replace it with joy. Jesus made this woman whole. He healed her. And he continues to do so in this world. But here's... The really good news. Not only does Jesus do that, but like the woman in need of healing, Jesus doesn't demand payment. Not from us anyway. There was a payment. He supplied that. He is more than generous with his healing. It's us who are holding ourselves back from the healing and the wholeness that we need. In our search for freedom, we will go broke unless we find it in Christ. So this story of faith and freedom and bringing wholeness anticipates this next story. Remember, this is the, the sandwich part. This is like the meat and the cheese. So now we're going to go back to the bread part of the, the sandwich, to the outside story, where Jesus faces the biggest threat, something that none of us, no human ever, has ever been able to be in charge of, and that's death. Death itself is the ultimate oppressor. And what we, um, in this story, what we find is Jairus, as a leader in the synagogue, Obviously, up until now, leaders in the synagogue not looked at the best light in Mark so far, or any of the Gospels. Generally, they aren't given the best reports. Religious leaders weren't keen on Jesus, but Jairus, at the very least, is probably desperate. His daughter is dying. And so he earnestly begged Jesus to come and save her. So then Jesus kind of took his time getting to Jairus' house. Remember, he's relaxed. He's not hurried. He's not rushed. And someone, uh, at, while Jesus is healing this other woman and taking his time... Uh, Jairus finds out that his, his daughter has died. But Jesus tells him, don't be afraid, have faith. And we've seen this before, right? Fear and faith. So Jesus takes the three disciples he was closest with, uh, Peter, James, and John. They all go to Jairus' house. The people are wailing, this little girl has died. What was it like in Jairus' head, thinking Jesus is going to come save this, this person, and then finding out you're not even there when your daughter is dead? You get the, you get the report. But Jesus says she isn't dead, and they all laugh. Now, I love how it says they laughed at him, and then it says, after he put them all out, kind of like this, like, this little, what will happen in that? Just, all right, everybody out, out. I mean, never underestimate Jesus. He'll put you out. That's kind of how he works. Uh, so he kicks everyone else out except for Jairus and his wife and those three special disciples, the close disciples, and they walk into the child's room, and Jesus says, little girl, get up, and immediately she gets up. She starts walking around. It's like, it doesn't appear like she's even groggy. And they were astonished. Remember, this is the word Mark likes to use when people are completely out of their mind. They do not, do not understand how to process this. It's not like people then were like, oh yeah, magic and stuff happens and people get raised from the dead all the time. No, it completely blew their minds. They're like, I don't even know what to think. My brain is broken. An explosion in my head. What in the world just happened? So it freaked them out. They didn't know what to think. And Jesus is like, well, give her something to eat. You know, she just, she just died and came back. Like, at least give her something to eat. So there's spiritual forces, there are physical diseases, Jesus has power over that, but death? 
the thing nobody has ever come close to stopping or even have any kind of semblance of control over? Is there anything Jesus doesn't have control over? I mean, all the stories of fountains of youth or cryogenic freezing or all the kind of hopes that we have that one day science is going to figure out this problem of death, we're completely powerless under it. It will be a part of everyone's story. And yet Jesus is in control of it all. I listened to a, um, an unnerving story by Phil Keegan, who uh, is a TV presenter in America and produced the U.S. version of The Amazing Race. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that or not. Um, before he was this famous guy, he worked on documentaries. He was a, like a, a cameraman. Uh, and his job for this particular documentary was to go down to a shipwreck. Now, he kind of knew how to scuba dive a little bit, but he wasn't like a master. Um, basically, he was just a guy who could wear a wetsuit and hold a camera. And, um, and it's actually quite claustrophobic. So he's a bit reticent going 150 feet down to film the shipwreck. But he goes through it because he doesn't want to, you know, basically make pe- let people know he's afraid. Well, at that depth that they were going to, they basically only had eight minutes because of all the air and the battery life. And um, there was like an old school film reel. So he just had like two minutes of film that he was going to shoot. Well, they get down there. They're following this expert diver down to the shipwreck. Um, and because the expert knows the wreck so well, he does like multiple dives a day, they don't like tie a string or anything to know like which way is in or out. Um, I think you're starting to get the picture of what happens here. Well, the, the ship is on its side, so all, everything is a bit disoriented, it's kind of all on its side, and they're going in and out of these small kind of either window openings or door openings, kind of barely fitting through things. Um, and they have to make their way slowly because there's a lot of silt about. So if they move quickly, like all the mud and dirt will get kicked up and they won't be able to see anything. And they'll kind of get stuck down there. And um, it's not too good if you're claustrophobic. Like if, if you're claustrophobic a bit, maybe just thinking that you start to sweat a little bit. Uh, well, they get to this main ballroom of this big shipwreck. All the tables are on their sides. And it's in this dark sideways kind of world. The expert diver directs Phil Keegan to hold onto the edge of the table so that he doesn't kind of float away because now there's a current that's going through. Uh, so our uh, Phil Keegan wants to tell the expert that he's starting to freak out a bit. Like the current is moving, it's really dark, he's holding on to this table, and he's because he's uh, getting excited, he's using a lot more air, and he's start, his air is kind of going down a little bit, so he wants to tell the expert diver, I'm starting to freak out, but also he's very afraid of coming across as you know, something less than a man. And so he tries to, to pull it together. And so he does. So to, to conserve battery life though now, they switch off their lights. So they're there and the pitch black, can't see anything. But at least he knows the expert diver is there. Until that expert like turns on the light, kind of holds under his, his face like when telling like, a Halloween scary story. And he says, he basically motions that he has to go because there's another dive team that's not met them there yet. And he's worried they have lost their way. And so he says, just hang on, basically, however you say this underwater, like hang on to that table so you don't float away, so I don't lose you. I'm gonna go find this other dive, this other dive team. And so he leaves and he's holding onto the table and Phil Keegan's light is on because he has to save the energy, he has to save the battery life. So he's there, he's pitch black, it's alone. He can feel the current. And now, even though he's wearing a thick wetsuit, it's, it's cold. He can feel the, the, how cold the water is. So he reaches for his light, and he, he can't seem to find it. And he's already kind of freaking out all by himself. So he kind of flails a little bit. He loses his grip on the table. Finally finds the, the light switch. But because he's been freaking out, all the silt is everywhere. He has no idea where he is. He doesn't know which way is up because there are like bubbles floating like all over the place. 
and now his breather apparatus cannot keep up with how fast he's breathing air in, so water starts coming in. He thought he was going to die. He doesn't die because he's telling the story. <laughs> but eventually he gets up. He gets up. The expert diver kind of finds him, and they get up. They didn't. They didn't have time to shoot anything. I don't know what happened to the dive team. But he gets to the surface. He survives. It, he sees. Um, he, he was describing what he saw. It was like the blue sky seemed like neon, crazy blue, like that light there. It's this neon blue brightness. And he says he was really surprised. The very first two things that he thought when he came up on the boat and found out he was not going to die was one, how stupid you were for thinking you won't die, like ever in your life, for not for never thinking about death. And two, this is interesting, how stupid you were for thinking you can't live without a purpose. Those are the very first two things that popped into his head. You were as dumb to think that death was not a thing. And you were dumb to think that you can just kind of float through life. So we might escape that underwater wreckage once. Maybe twice. But eventually it's going to have its day. And we don't like thinking about death. It's not pleasant dinner conversation. I was pondering my own mortality the other day and I thought about this. That's just not something that is normal for us. But we're all going to die. That means everything we've worked for in this life will be gone one day. Money, influence, all the good that you've done, relationships. In a hundred years' time, we will all be completely forgotten. Will anyone even know our names, let alone who we are? What's the most honorable thing to live for? A family? They're of no help. When you die, they're still alive. They'll be able to watch. They'll say nice things at your funeral, but they cannot help you with death. What good will living for lesser things be when you come face to face with your own death? Death undoes everything. And we're all in this sideways, dark world, submerged underwater, and death is the ultimate oppressor. And Christ is the only one who can liberate us from its clutches. Because in the face of all of that, as horrible as it is, and as painful and as it is and ought to be, Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. In the face of all that, Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. I mean, how is that for punk rock? Like, in the face of the worst oppression we have ever experienced as, uh, as people, Jesus says, don't be afraid, only believe. Through Jesus, we can live with a freedom unparalleled by anything else. We don't need to fear death ourselves. So this little girl has been saved from death, has been resuscitated, but eventually she's going to die. She's dead now, this girl. She will experience the failure of her body as she gets older. She will probably see others in her life die as well. But the hope isn't in resuscitation, it's in resurrection. There's a difference between the two. Resuscitation is dying and coming back to the life that you already had. Resurrection is dying and coming back to the life that Jesus gives, a new life. And though resuscitation is great and miraculous and amazing, resurrection is really the rescue that we need. And from the beginning, God has been weaving his story of rescue into his world. From spiritual problems to physical problems to our biggest need, rescue from death itself. This has been the work of the Trinity since the beginning book of the Bible. The father seeing his creation, his children in trouble, he couldn't abide by it. His heart ached for his children to know him and to be free from everything that held them back. So the father and the son and the spirit, they had a plan the Father sent his own son, Jesus. I mean, Jesus was once experiencing perfect love in the Trinity, perfect happiness with the Father and the Spirit willingly came to earth. 
And after this story in Mark, at the end of Mark, Jesus dies so that we don't have to. He died so that some, because someone has to pay for our mistakes. And Jesus knew that if we were to die, that'd be it. We'd be sunk. We'd have no other hope. So he took all that upon himself. And that's what this bread and wine points to. Jesus' body was broken for our sakes on the cross so that we wouldn't experience the death that he experienced. And Jesus' blood poured out for us, giving us a hope of new life. Because Jesus has power over death, which is made clear in this story, even though he died, death couldn't hold him down. So he resurrected himself. And this resurrection was something new, something different than the story of the girl being resuscitated back to life. Jesus resurrected with a new life, having already took our sins with him, our brokenness with him, our darkness and death with him. He has risen up from the grave and gives us new lives. That Jesus is in power in this new life. And that's really good news because that means we don't have to find that power ourselves. We don't even have that power ourselves. But this wasn't just a Jesus thing. It isn't just a Jesus and the Father thing. This is a Jesus, Father, and the Holy Spirit thing. I don't know what's happened there. So the, the Son and the Father um, don't just stop with this. With, with Jesus dying on the cross, and even no, don't even stop with his resurrection. The Son and the Father send his Spirit to the church. And each one of us who, have, who follow Jesus have the Spirit, so that this Christian life isn't something that we just try harder at and do better at, although hopefully over time we get more mature, but it's all the more of a surrender to the power of the Spirit that we have already been given because it's inside of us. So when Jesus tells us to eat this bread and drink the wine to remember him and what he's done, we do this in a spirit of thankfulness. All who come up here, we say this. We give up the idea of relying on ourselves. We surrender all of us to Jesus. We give up on our fear. We just believe. And that's why we ask, if you don't believe in Jesus, this is not for you. If you do believe in Jesus, whether you're a part of Redeemer or not, this is for you. The gift of resurrection is one we experience in bits now, but one day we will experience it fully. One day all death will be put to death because of what Jesus has done. He hasn't just saved us. He saved the world. And that's what we are called to reflect in all we are and all that we do. Being freed from all our oppression. Being given this mercy from our Lord. Given a new life of freedom. Now with a new purpose to tell others about it and to live out his truths. Let me pray.